Hello, and greetings from UNICEF Office of Research in Ocenti. And welcome to all our hundreds of participants from across the globe. I am your host, Sarah Crow, and this is the fifth Leading Minds online webcast, What the Experts Say on Coronavirus and Children. Today, our panel of experts will take an up-close look at a topic often overlooked, hygiene. We will be asking the experts why this seemingly basic issue of hygiene and hand washing matters more now than probably at any other time in history and what to do about it. We are fortunate today to have speakers joining us live from all parts of the globe. From the east in New Delhi, India, we have Pamishwaram Ayer, Secretary, Department of Drinking Water and Sanitation, Ministry of Jal Shakti, India. From the far west in Seattle, US, we have Erin McCusker, Global Head of Satu Lixor, which pioneers water and housing products. From WHO, World Health Organization headquarters in Geneva, Dr. Nyako Yamamoto, Assistant Director General, Healthier Populations. From London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, Associate Professor Robert Dreiberbiss. And from UNICEF headquarters, Kelly Ann Naylor, Head of Water, Sanitation and Hygiene. Welcome to you all. I'm going to be speaking to all of you in a minute, uh, and my colleague David Anthony will be taking a deep dive into solutions. Thanks, Sarah, and welcome to everyone. I'll be going to the questions coming from the audience in about 30 to 40 minutes, and then onto a poll, which you can complete during the short break, and then we'll go into the solutions section. Back over to you, Sarah. Thanks, David. Irrefutable evidence has long shown that the simplest and cheapest act can make the biggest and most effective difference in the fight against COVID-19, everyday, bog-standard hand washing. Down through the ages from Roman times until the horribly unhygienic Middle Ages, when Europeans avoided water, literally like the plague, Poor hygiene spreads germs like wildfire, led to mass cholera pandemics, the Spanish flu, and millions of early deaths across the world. It wasn't until mid-19th century that doctors and nurses in North America and Europe began to wash their hands before treating patients. And once they did, the light bulb went off. It dramatically cut the death rate of mothers in childbirth and patients in general. Yet despite this overwhelming proof that hygiene is the very foundation of good health, today 40% of the world's population do not have a place to wash their hands with simple soap and water. And half the world's population uh, do not wash their hands after the toilet. In fact, fewer men than women, as we'll hear soon, only one third of men and two thirds of women. And in 60 of the highest risk countries, Two out of three people, that's one billion in total, do not have the means to wash their hands with soap and water at home. All of a sudden, when the pandemic hit this year, COVID hit this year, the humble habit of hand washing seems to finally be having its heyday as a lifesaver. It's become the done thing. But now, as more and more countries ease lockdown restrictions, populations begin moving around, and children start going back to school and out to play, 
the risk of slipping out of these good practices like washing your hands is dangerously rising, even in countries with good hygiene facilities. So how can we make the most of this once in a lifetime opportunity to truly revolutionize hygiene in homes, markets and mosques, bars and buses, classrooms and church halls? What will it take for businesses, governments and ordinary citizens to be convinced to adopt and keep these habits like our lives literally depended on it? Because in many cases, they actually do. What has history taught us about hygiene from earlier pandemics and how can we change the future of health forever? Before we dive into these and other questions, we have a special message from a man who's known not only as an international cricket sensation, but as South Asia's hand-washing celebrity, Sachin Tendulkar. The partnership with UNICEF is very close to my heart. All these years, we have been spreading awareness about the importance of hand wash. But now, more than ever, is the time for all of us to realize that this is a simple but most effective method of keeping viruses at bay. We have to wash our hands like our lives depend on it, because it literally does. This pandemic has reminded us that we as a society are one. We are as strong as the weakest amongst us and as healthy as the sickest. We should therefore ensure that everyone has access to basic hand washing facilities. I wish the UNICEF teams the very best for this leading minds conclave and for them to carry forward successful execution and communication of hand wash initiatives. Thank you. Thank you, Session. Indeed, we are as healthy as the weakest amongst us. Uh, and no easy road on implementation, that's for sure. So now as a way of setting the stage, so to speak, for our discussion, let's get a visual reminder of some of that key data on hygiene in the run-up to the COVID era before I turn to the panelists. shockers there if you think about it. So now for a virtual round the table, I'm going to ask each panelist to answer this one question in 30 to 40 seconds, please. As a hygiene expert, what has been the biggest shock or surprise during the pandemic when it comes to your field, which is of course hygiene? Let me start with Paramayer in New Delhi. Then I'll move to Dr. Nyaku Yamamoto in Geneva followed by Robert Dragobis in London, then to Erin McCusker in Seattle, and finally to Kellyanne Naylor in New York. Over to you first, Param. Your thoughts. Yeah, thank you, uh, you know, I think what the most pleasant surprise was the incredible, uh, uh, you know, acceptance of the practice of hand washing with soap as soon as uh, the corona pandemic broke. 
you know, I've been working in this sector for a very long time. And together with my good friend Val Curtis of the London School and others from the World Bank, we were trying to put hand washing with soap on the, the national, the global uh, hygiene agenda for a long time. Then, of course, we did the Swatch Bharat mission in India where, you know, we successfully managed to change the behavior of people from defecating in the open. But hand washing with soap was always a challenge. And now uh, it's become accepted practice in India. Everyone is washing their hands with soap. They're using sanitizer whenever they can. And I think hygiene behavior, uh, in particular hand washing with soap, is very much on the agenda as Sachin Tendulkar told us. Thank you, Param. Uh, Dr. Nyoko. Yes. For me, it's a shock or surprise is even in well-developed or prepared countries, the world has had or has huge spaces to improve, to keep and sustain quality hygiene, including hand hygiene and wash at, at the public health crisis. And um, another, not surprise, but COVID-19 de-emphasizes how much we have to do for hand hygiene. Thank you very much, Doctor. Uh, Robert, Tribalbus, we'll go to you now in London. Shock or surprise, or both? <laughs> um, I, I, I think, uh, thanks. I, I think in general, it's been a, a surprise how, 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 how rapidly there's been this, an acknowledgement on the global, global level uh, down to the local level on the importance of hand hygiene. I think as earlier, this is something we've been pushing um, from a public health perspective for, for decades now across the world. And it seems, you know, I think, one pleasant surprise is how this is really kind of potentially positioned as well for some long-term and systemic changes in hygiene uh, practices. Thank you, Robert. Uh, going now to Seattle, Erin McCusker, your thoughts. Yes, I, I would just echo, I think, a lot of what the others have said in terms of the awareness of the hand hygiene. I, you know, we would also say the, the access to sanitation, now that many people are at their households or more uh, localized into their communities, just the awareness, how many people are talking about it, the awareness of community leaders, of governments, of individuals, but also, you know, as um, Secretary Iyer was saying, how rapidly people were willing to adopt this behavior change. And for us, it's, it's really about seeing that quick behavior change. Why now? What took people this opportunity now to make that change? And looking ahead, how do we sustain that? And how do we keep some of this momentum going? That's the big question. Kellyanne in New York. Over to you, Kellyanne, for your thoughts. Yeah, I have to agree with um, shock uh, and surprise. I think on the surprise side, again, reiterating um, how um, valuable it's been to get the tremendous support um, of the um, just widespread different stakeholders. But I think to highlight, I think it's also really brought out the social inequalities. And I think, you know, while um, UNICEF and WHO um, are, you know, custodians of the date of the joint monitoring program, you know, we were, we were maybe shocked about how unknown it was that 3 billion people um, lack handwashing uh, services and visibility at home, 900 million school children, and 43% of healthcare facilities lack hand hygiene at the point of care. So I think we were maybe shocked by the lack of awareness um, about the scale of the problem. Thank you, Kelly. And of course, we're hoping to change that awareness, partly with this, this kind of program and, and other points. Let's pick up 
some of the bigger issues there. I'm going to start with the academic view. Uh, Robert, you mentioned that you, you seemed fairly, fairly upbeat, but as an expert in behavioral science particularly, you've been looking at the, into the fear factor as a temporary trigger for change of habit. What have you learned from past pandemics and epidemics that can be applied to hygiene and COVID-19 today? I mentioned some of them earlier. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, uh, thanks. I, you know, I, I think one thing, we've all acknowledged how rapid um, kind of the, the uptake of hygiene behaviors have been in the context of COVID-19 where possible. Um, you know, I think from a behavioral science perspective, it's actually not incredibly surprising. This is a brand new threat. It's a new disease. There's a lot of media attention. It's, it's kind of permeating every aspect of our existence. And we know that in these contexts, people are often willing to adopt new behaviors or kind of increase specific behaviors. Fear can become a very, very powerful motivator. I think the challenge is fear actually doesn't sustain that motivation for a long period of time. So we've talked about kind of progress. But I think there's also a need to recognize how fragile that progress actually is in terms of changing behaviors, coupled with the kind of large scale social inequalities that do that are kind of compounding the ability of individuals to adopt these improved practices. So really understanding that this fear might have been a short term temporary trigger in terms of improving behaviors, but we need kind of longer term and more systemic solutions in order to make sure that this progress is maintained. But Robert, you know, in spite of universal medical advice, different cultures and nations seem to have different and divergent attitudes on hand washing, wearing masks, keeping physical distancing. People surely know how to do a lot of this and when to do it, except, of course, the new things like masks and distancing. So how do you make it easier, more routine? How do you actually make it change for good and to stick yeah, I, th I think that's the uh, the, the multi-billion-dollar question um, that, that we're all kind of struggling with is how do we get these changes to kind of maintain and sustain? I think the kind of important things to remember is that we do know hand washing as a behavior is really determined by quite a number of things. It's something that's very much embedded in your daily routines. It's determined by the infrastructure that you have access to. It's determined by the norms around you. So really understanding that we're going to need in the short term, kind of these education programs informing people about COVID-19, highlighting disease risk might be particularly effective. But in terms of long-term change, we really need comprehensive strategies that are going to increase access to infrastructure, increase access to soap, and understand the kind of broad range of, of kind of emotional deter or emotional psychological determinants that can really maintain that. In the short term, this might be something things like the trigger hand washing at key moments. Uh, utilizing infrastructure creatively, utilizing the physical environment to kind of nudge or, or kind of push people towards, um, and, you know, hand washing when they're supposed to, but really thinking about this from a very comprehensive perspective from a behavior change science. Just to go back to the issue on the fear factor, with the HIV and AIDS pandemic, for instance, did, did the fear factor work for a sustained period of time or was it very short lived? Um, you know, uh, that's, um, I'm, I, I would imagine that, that that's kind of a difficult comparison to make given the kind of long-term changes that we've seen with HIV and AIDS. I do think kind of one thing about handwashing that really separates it, or hygiene behaviors in general, that separate that from other behaviors that kind of make these 
direct comparisons really difficult is just how embedded hygiene is in your daily activities. There's multiple times a day that you need to wash your hands with soap. You're in these key moments over and over. It really is. It's not like you know other behaviors in terms of those determinants because of just how frequent you have to practice this behavior on an almost continuous basis to really kind of see the health benefits. Right. Thanks, Robert. I'm going to turn now to uh, Secretary Ayer because we've seen extraordinary changes uh, in India. Uh, Paramaya, you mentioned a bit earlier uh, some of the issues around open defecation, for instance, through your work over many years at the World Bank and at the helm of the Swash Bharat movement, you've led and in fact witnessed uh, giant strides in the sanitation space. What can the world learn from India's challenges at this critical time, uh, particularly for settings where there's just no easy access to soap and water, where you need low-tech solutions, hygiene solutions like uh, ash and so on? Can you tell us a bit about that? Sure. You know, as you mentioned, Sarah, uh, you know, the Swaj Bharat uh, revolution, we like to call it, was all about massive behavior change, you know, 550 million people stopping defecation in the open. There were a couple of very important factors there. Uh, one of them, of course, in India was the incredible amount of political commitment. You know, this was a program led by Prime Minister Modi. He lent all his uh, sort of political weight to the program. And that went all the way down the line in our federal system, right down to the village level. Made a very big difference, uh, you know, having that level of support. But there's another aspect of the program, which uh, in fact the Prime Minister has been emphasizing recently, which is about going local. In fact, going, being vocal about local. Because some of these huge global issues really need to be tackled at the local level. So for example, in India, uh, the twin pit, leech pit uh, toilet model, because we don't have a lot of network sanitation, turned out to be the most appropriate technology and at the local level, it's manufactured locally and supplied locally. And similarly, uh, today, we have 4 million groups of self-help uh, groups of women who uh, as part of the employment program are manufacturing cloth masks for uh, to deal with COVID-19. So there's a lot of local effort, which we think is very important because in, in a country of the size of India, or I guess anywhere, one size never fits all. And so we need to come up with local solutions, whether it's local technology, local material, or even just local methods of triggering behavior change. So you mentioned local and vocal, local leadership. So not only leadership at the very top, but really local village level uh, leadership is really critical. That's an interesting point. So what can governments do really to sort of further push privately owned spaces if you're talking about the very high level uh, leadership but low level leadership as well? So what about restaurants, markets, uh, mosques, fa factories, workplaces, schools? to permanently adopt good hygiene practices there. Um, you said one size doesn't fit all, but you, you know, we've learned a lot from, from India. I mean, I, I lived in India for four years and it's astonishing what's, what's happened in, in, this, in the last 10 years. No, you're absolutely right. So one of the efforts which the government is trying to make at all levels is to facilitate and trigger uh, entrepreneurship at all levels. And you know, I wear another hat in uh, my capacity as chairman of the Empowered Group on Supply Chain and Logistics during the pandemic. And uh, a lot of uh, what we call SOPs, you know, uh, procedures, standard operating procedures for exactly what you're talking about. How do you go out in marketplaces safely? 
what are good practices for shops and consumers to practice as they go about their daily uh, routines. So a lot of SOPs have been developed uh, as kind of frameworks, and then these are adapted at the local level. And we're also encouraging a lot of local entrepreneurs to come up in the hygiene space. So we are seeing a lot of buzz in India today, not just on manufacturing of, of sanitizer, but also in terms of coming out with simple products which can be purchased locally, all uh, to try and further the, the business of promoting hygiene and public health. So soapies for promotion of soap, I like that. Erin <laughs> uh, McCusker in, in Seattle, you've just launched a new hygiene tap for use in the very settings that we've heard uh, from the secretary in India, uh, where there simply is no running water. What motivate this and why now? Sato, we launched our Sato tap last week, which we were very excited to be able to announce, and we hope to be shipping them for students in the fall. But the motivation really came from our designer, Daigo Ishiyama. You know, he was really thinking through, much like the Sato pan and our Sato toilet products, where is this gap? You know, what is preventing some of this behavior change or this access at the household levels in the communities that Sato tends to serve? And for us, it was also about taking advantage of the momentum that others have spoken to around. We're seeing this behavior change. And so how do you make it easier? How do you really reinforce it as part of the daily routine? Um, Daigo's design process really starts with that problem. You know, what is that barrier that Secretary Iyer was talking about? Why aren't people hand washing with soap? And one of them is simply the, the access to that hand washing station, that trigger to use a hand washing facility after going to the bathroom or, or in the household. And so how do we try to create something that was simple, mobile, that used less water than maybe some of the other solutions, and that could really promote more of a contactless uh, engagement um, using your elbow or using your wrist to kind of pull down the tap. So those are really the design features that drove us while keeping with the Sato principles of affordability and simplicity for these households. And so far, what is the success? Too soon to tell, I'm imagining. Too soon to tell, but we've been really pleased with some of our, our first prototypes. We were able to get user feedback and really come into the, um, bring it into the market and start to test just even in Daigo's basement or a few of us just using it. Our goal is, you know, just to really get it out into households, get that user feedback and then continue to iterate and make that better. Right. But Erin, it's always surprising that, you know, with the private sector, you're part of the private sector, can deliver soft drinks to the furthest, most far-flung locations in the world. So what can it do now to really roll out hand-washing facilities to every single child, man, woman, wherever they are? You know, this is a really important piece of what Sato is trying to do. You know, we are producing a hand-washing station. We're not producing soap. We're not producing the plastic bottles that go in to, to feed the water. And so it's really about private sector companies, I think, coming together and starting to look at where do we have supply chain advantages? Where are we, you know, producing smaller portions of soap that make it more affordable for households in rural communities? How do we get our Sato tasks there and create more of a bundle so that we really reinforce this hand washing with soap. But I think that the private sector is really starting to see the consumers and the users at all levels. Um, you know, Lixel is a fixtures and fittings company. We're also talking about contactless faucets for, you know, homes in Europe and homes in the US. It's, I think these are challenges that every household is facing about how do we 
do hand washing? How do we engage in our daily activities more safely? But for the consumers for Sato and the households we're trying to reach, it's going to take private sector companies coming together with all the pieces of the puzzle. And as we start to learn from each other about getting those supply chains built, about leveraging each other's supply chains, then I think we'll be able to get a lot more of these interventions into where they're needed. And it's also about using the plastic bottles that are already in circulation, uh, as, as you say. So it's more that joined up approach, isn't it? Um, turning now to WHO, of course, you know, leading uh, very much this response in so many ways. Uh, Dr. Nyoko, across the world, more than 40% of healthcare facilities just do not have hand hygiene at the point of care where you really need it most, putting doctors, nurses, patients at huge risks. And we've seen astonishing, tragic numbers of deaths from, from COVID, and that's of course in the best of settings. So what could be done to expand access uh, to you know, at least adequate hygiene facilities within health centers, within health facilities, particularly in low-income settings? Thank you. As you said, that it's a tragedy. It's such a huge number of health facilities that have access to the wash and hand hygiene. And but we have several. We have many good ex experience and good practice in uh, maybe could uh, you say India, but other Ghana or Ethiopia or Cambodia, and we learned what we have to do and how we can do it. The practically, we should conduct the situation analysis, assessment, also set the target and also national standards, and also maintain how to maintain the infrastructure and monitor, review data, and of course, develop the healthcare workers and engage communities. So we know <clears throat> what we have to do. So, and WHO, together with UNICEF and our partners, we can provide technical support and there's other support. But uh, to ask how we can accelerate our effort to, to reach our goals. Goal is everybody, every health facility has access to ocean hygiene. First, we have to see, keep our UN agency, we will keep the, the, and raise these issues, keep political momentum. Advocacy is one of the one of the issues. Second is we together with UNICEF, we will continue to monitor and show the data and show that our reality the people to work. But and, and to addition to that, we need one is we requires leadership in the home, leadership in the community, leadership in the country and the global sector. Second, definitely we need an investment. We need more funding, we need more system, we need a mechanism. So we, we need to mobilize the issues to accelerate the issue. Thank Leadership you. and investment indeed. Uh, wh where's the money going to come from, doctor? Okay, but uh, the many countries, they have a domestic resources, but also international funding, uh, we can, how we can, puts the wash and hand hygiene is a core or center of the development agenda. This is the issues. But again, this is, a, all people will say that it is issues of the equity of the people, life and health, but this is a human rights issues. So this is a foundation, the people rights. So we together, all of us, to bring that uh, these issues at the center of the development and use existing funding 
uh, effectively, efficiently, uh, together with people. You've, you've mentioned already, Doctor, that WHO and UNICEF have just launched this uh, major initiative with national governments to push through policy changes, because that's really important, isn't it? Because as, as you said, leadership, we also heard that from India, leadership, very key. Uh, but so what are the opportunities and obstacles um, that you're dealing with on both these these levels right now? Okay, so let me start first opportunities. Many people recognize, but I also said that, say that COVID-19 pandemic has a shine spotlight, hand hygiene and washing. Mm -hmm. we, you, we will use this opportunity and to, to translate this public awareness to the action. And uh, many political leaders also going to raise the issues, like, uh, for example, world leaders joint call to action for COVID-19, and many head of states is, has already called action. So we would like to use this, uh, uh, this momentum to do it. And the second issue is, uh, again, uh, we will come up to some practical solution together with partners. To, to invest the society and also uh, create a good uh, practice as uh, to and share the land to each other. So India's leaders say that uh, it's not one fit all issues, but all countries, many countries, many communities have a solution. But obstruct or challenges, I should say first, this is, uh, we need a whole, multi-sector approach or whole society approach. If we can, uh, the health sector, WHO, we cannot do by ourselves and UNICEF as well. So we need to mobilize all people to get together. Always this is a challenge to create a good team. And again, uh, how we can maintain this momentum. Right. Uh, because That's really there, key, are many, there, yeah. there are many agenda in the world, yeah. uh, but definitely this is a foundation for the society, I believe. Many agendas in the world, but actually really only only one issue that's dominating every day <laughs> right now, and that's, and that's this pandemic and how do we make the, the best of a dreadful situation. Uh, turning now to, to Kelly from UNICEF. Uh, Kelly, we heard a, a bit from from Dr. Yamamoto on the, uh, on the, on the various initiatives uh, and some of the data that uh, I mentioned earlier on that, for instance, I mean, it's a real surprise, actually, that two-thirds of females, but only one-third of males, wash their hands after using the toilet. Uh, considering that hygiene promotion has, you have been at the forefront for 20 years, all of you on the panel uh, have been pushing this, uh, and it's been known a long, long time, uh, and the benefits have been clear. So why do people still not wash their hands? And when they have, even if they do have access to water and soap. Kelly. Yeah, thanks so much, uh, Sarah. And, and I think this is a question that we're all, um, we're all asking ourselves. And, and, uh, and I think that drives us um, to try to do better because it does seem when you're faced with such, you know, overwhelming evidence um, to, to not do it, um, it's, it's, you, have to, you have to dig in. I think maybe just to start first with the gender question, because I think that's a really interesting one because you have a situation where, um, I mean, considered equal in terms of what's available 
um, you know, you have one group doing something and one group not. And I think, you know, we could see this as a good example of really of, you know, what we could call gender socialization and the far reaching impacts that it has. And I think there are studies um, and, you know, maybe some of us um, have, you know, seen this um, in action that it shows particularly younger men really tend to be bigger risk takers. Um, they tend to be macho um, and they, in, in a way that suggests they shouldn't fear germs. Um, and so kind of these recommendations are maybe for other people. They're maybe not really um, addressing um, addressing their um, perception of, of the risk. Um, I think on the other hand, if we look um, at women, um, women have been really socialized as caretakers. Um, this is not new. This has been really across history, whether it's um, hygiene, health promotion programs that really focus on women as caretakers of the family. And I think, you know, these programs have really promoted it being a women's duty to keep your family healthy. Um, and, you know, I think some of this could really um, feed into the way that um, that this has manifested itself. So there was an interesting article um, recently by the New Republic called Cleaning the Final um, Feminist Frontier, Why Men Still Don't Do Their Share of the Dirty Work. And I think, you know, that gets in a little bit to some of these issues. Um, but I think also, you know, women and men also react very differently to hygiene promotion messages, um, which is, of course, a driver of how we need to look at designing our programs to really be reaching all segments of the population very specifically. Right. Thanks, Kelly. Don't want to go into the blame game, do we? But uh, it is probably time to start focusing on, on men and boys, isn't it? Just, I want to ask you now the, the same question I, I put to Erin for the private sector. Uh, when the international community, for instance, can get vaccines out to the most extraordinarily remote places on earth, why at this point in the 21st century do 3 billion people, 40% of the world's population, still not have a place in their homes? So it's one thing to wash hands, but still not have a place in the home uh, to wash their hands with soap and water. Uh, and what can we all do better? We heard leadership was one issue, investment another. Any other thoughts there? Great, thanks. I think this is a really, a really key question. I, I think in UNICEF, we've been really thinking of this, maybe if you will, like a three-legged stool. Um, and, and really for it to work, all of the three legs really have to come together. I think the first, and, and we've talked quite a bit about it here, is really the behavior change. I mean, there has to be first and foremost, a demand um, to wash your hands. I mean, that if you don't think it's important um, and you don't think it, it, it's relevant for you, then, you know, that that's kind of a non-starter. So one of these stool legs is the is the behavior change. Um, the second one um, is 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 really you know drawing from Aaron's point um, is really having um, the right. Um, supply side, and that is really around both having, um, having you know, you have to have soap, you have to have water, and you have to have a mechanism that enables you to um, relatively, um, you know, uh, comfortably and accessibly um, wash your hands. And I think this is where the focus and where we see things really breaking down. Um, you know, that we, we haven't talked a lot about it yet here, but, the, you know, there's a tremendous socioeconomic impact of this crisis. And this is, of course, compounding and hitting the poorest um, house 
households um, the, the most. And so, you know, we've been through data, through anecdotal evidence, really seeing that soap is becoming unaffordable um, in certain contexts. Um, also, we have um, situations where there's water scarcity. So, um, you know, both kind of the cost and the availability of water, um, making um, hand washing maybe a choice, um, you know, having to prioritize, do you wash your hands? Do you, you know, do you drink water? Do you cook? Do you wash clothes? Um, and, and I think, you know, again, we see that pressure really falling on, um, you know, the most disadvantaged um, households because they don't um, have readily available access um, at an affordable um, price. Um, I think the last um, point, you know, in kind of that third leg of the stool is really, um, you know, that environment that is um, promoting this. And, and I think, you know, we've, we've talked about the fact that this is really something that has to happen across a number of settings, whether it's the household, whether it's workplaces, whether it's um, healthcare facilities, whether it's schools, public markets. Um, I think, you know, and that's why, again, you know, reiterating this idea of a whole of society approach is that it has to be everybody's business. And I think we've learned a lot of lessons from Swash Bharat um, that, that really have inspired um, the work that we're doing in this initiative to try to, you know, get other non-traditional actors involved and leading the way. Right, right, indeed. Well, you talk about the three-legged stool. We're going on to the second leg of our stool. So we also have a three-legged approach for this program. Uh, and I'm going to pass now to uh, my co-host, David Anthony, who's been looking at some of the questions coming in. And there have been some, I've seen some of them are quite... Uh, quite pointed, uh, so you know, get ready for those. And, and please do also draw on some of your previous experiences. Um, Param, perhaps bring up some of the experiences you've had in Vietnam and elsewhere, uh, and as well, Kelly, from, from various parts in Africa where you've, where you've lived and worked. Um, that'd be really interesting. So over to you now, uh, David Anthony. Thank you very much, Sarah. And thanks to all the panelists, great discussion. Uh, I've been looking at the Q&A and also been listening to what you said. And I think as we go into the next part of the show, we're gonna focus very strongly on the solutions part of it. So as, as Sarah said, get ready to think about what to do about the points that you've raised. I think from the Q&A, we've seen a lot of the, the questions that have been answered by the panelists. Two stand out though for me. The first is, I'm going to direct this one to Kellyanne and to Naoko. And it's about the idea of the interaction between more intensified water use uh, and climate change. What, what, what is going to be the links between making people wash their hands more, use more water, be cleaner, and, and the water scarcity, Kellyanne, that you've mentioned, and some of the issues of using some of these products, such as hand sanitizer, which people are very worried about, not only on the health for them in the long term, but their impact on the environment. So Kellyanne first and then Naoko. Hey David, thank, thanks so much. And, and I think, you know, these are the, the very first uh, questions that came up, I think, you know, in early, maybe kind of mid-March, um, you know, UNICEF had released a press release, um, you know, around these big numbers um, of people lacking access to hand washing um, and, you know, and, and promoting hand washing. And the first thing that came back was what do you do um, when you don't have water? Um, and I think, you know, that, that again, COVID didn't cause this problem, but it's, of course, highlighting um, much more fundamental issues um, in terms, I think, of both 
the um, yeah, both kind of what I would say would be availability of um, of of the of the resource. Do, you know, is there water available? And then really the dimension of is it accessible and affordable? Um, and you know, I think over and over again, there's many studies that show um, that the poor really pay disproportionately more. I think recently we were you know we put out a, a paper that talked about the poor paying 40 times as much um, as the rich who received um, or others who are connected to piped, piped water supply. So, um, uh, you know, I think the lockdown also has, has come on to that. It's really disrupted um, supply chains and services. Um, I think there's a big threat right now to water utilities. Um, a lot of discussions happening with the World Bank, with other um, financing institutions around trying to keep these public services running um, against this, um, you know, stark socioeconomic impact. So all of that really related to COVID and its response, but also in this backdrop um, where we do have a, a changing climate and we do have countries um, that are in, in a drought. And I think, you know, within our programming, I think we are having to look at this as kind of a multi-stage process um, where right now we really have this imperative around responding, um, whether those are long-term solutions or, you know, more immediate solutions, um, but already thinking about how are we going to build back our systems better um, and really I think reimagine the future and think about um, in, a, a, in a in a world where we have you know this is not the first this is not the last pandemic in a world where we have um, other dimensions with urbanization migration um, um, we have other and, and of course climate this is all going to put pressure on resources and I think raises um, really important questions around how we're going to be addressing these social inequalities so I think that's both technological but it's also a policy decision um, in terms of prioritizing um, access to uh, basic uh, water sanitation and hygiene um, as a, a policy choice um, and priority Thanks, Kellyanne. Mayorko, please. Thank you very much. From, from my side, is, uh, most of our issues are covered by uh, Kellyanne, but let me say that is the first water sanitation hygiene facility, as Kerry clearly said, that is a fun, uh, fundamental human rights issues. But how we make sure the, uh, the access, universal access to the wash and uh, hygiene, uh, hygiene facilities in short term and mid term and, and sustainable way. And uh, we uh, now international community discussing about better recovery or green healthier recovery. So we have a good example, many examples of how we can translate or actualize that our uh, experience to the each uh, region, country and community. That's the issue. So, but we have a several solutions. So we, we I think so we can do it. But I also added another issue is waste. Uh, it's not the water sanitation, but it's really linked to the sanitation. So many masks and gloves, uh, plastic bottles of the sanitizer, many gowns, and how we can handle the waste, uh, the dumping in the water or in the ocean. There's many issues right now happening uh, because of the COVID-19 and the uh, sanitation and the hygiene issues. So again, we also need to address the issues with the group committee. Thank you. Thanks, Mayoko. Thanks very much. My second question is going to be about slums. We know that already about a billion people live in slums. 
Um, and that often when people talk about water scarcity or people not doing these things, they think of the village. But the slum population of the world is proliferating. So to Param, to Erin, and to Robert, from your different perspectives, what are the kind of solutions that we can be looking for in the slum communities? I'm going to start with you first, Param. Uh, you know, I think uh, whether it's rural or urban, when you're talking of uh, urban slums, I think it's important to understand that providing access uh, to wash is, is very, very important. And, you know, in the end, if you really want to do things at scale, and we've got some of the largest uh, urban settlements or slums in the world, uh, you know, the government really needs to take the lead in partnership with uh, the private sector, with NGOs and so on. So, for example, in India, uh, the Prime Minister made another major announcement uh, in his first Independence Day speech of his second term. Uh, it's called the Jal Jeevan Mission, which is essentially providing drinking water, in this case, to all rural households. But we already have a fairly high access to water in urban settlements as well. And I think the more important part is actually providing public financing. That's one thing we learned. It's really important. That's the second P. The first was political leadership. But unless there is public funding, and I think the Indian government really put its money where its mouth was. In the Swaj Bharat mission, you know, $20, $25 billion were spent on toilets and providing access to sanitation. In the new mission, which is focused more on rural, but will also cover urban, uh, again, a lot of public funds are being invested, which you know demonstrates the importance being uh, paid to providing access. And I think the second important part is something I really learned from Vietnam, which uh, Sarah asked me to refer to, was how do we make uh, funding linked to results? I think that's very important because you can put in a lot of money and unless you're actually getting results, you're not getting outcomes which can be independently verified. So a new instrument called the Program for Results, a new World Bank lending instrument, which we started in Vietnam six, seven years ago, but essentially the, the funding is linked to results on the ground, which are independently verified, which gives you more confidence to invest more and more. So even in urban areas in India, we have a large program called Amrut, which deals with the smaller towns. And then we have the Smart Cities program, where most of the investment is going for water as well as wastewater, which is another major issue in urban areas in India. So I think the funding, but smart funding is extremely important to get results. Thanks very much, Pram. Erin, I'm going to go to you from the private sector's point of view. What can we do about getting safe water and a good hygiene practices in slums? Uh, thank you. I think one of the unique factors about the, the slum communities is the density, right? So we're talking about sort of the lack of space, whereas before you can think about water collection systems or installing, you know, two-pit latrines and sort of readily available space that you might have. One of the challenges is you have a high amount of need in a very dense environment, which actually puts all of these community members at a higher risk, you know, passing on these germs. So for us, you know, for Sato, it's really about taking on how do we meet, how do we drive up the demand? How do we build the awareness? But then how do we actually help meet that demand from the supply side, like Kellyanne was referencing? How do we work with the local shops? How do we work with the local self-help groups, the community leaders? Uh, how do we work with the community toilets that maybe exist already in these environments? And how do we start to get the products and the solutions out through more of a retail demand, you know, market-based solution? So we see this with soap companies, you see this with the soda bottles, the, you know, the drinks as well. And so why can't we take some of those 
basic principles of smaller sachet sizes, arming local um, carts or, or retail merchants with some of these solutions, using them as an advocacy, you know, the wall branding, the, the communication, the messages, build some of that demand and then provide it in the affordable, smaller sizes that actually enable households to feel like that's achievable and it's accessible for them. And that's one of the goals with the Sato Tap. You know, it's a one-time you know, item for a household, but it's there. And then maybe the soap tray is empty. Uh, or maybe you see a plastic water bottle that can hold more water uh, that you're, you're able to get from one of these water utilities or these water points. When that soap tray is empty, you know, what we're really hoping is that it triggers the behavior change for someone to go to their local retail shop and, and find you know, the bar of soap that best meets their household needs. So I think we really have to look at it from the unique needs of those communities, building the demand side, as Kellyanne was saying, but I think also then working with the private sector companies to design the products that actually are affordable and can be distributed within these communities in a very market-based sustainable way. Okay, David, we're going, to go now, we're going to go now to a poll, aren't we? We're going to try and be a param. We're, we're, we're going to put that to the audience, to the participants, to be very active in the Ministry of Health. What's what's the poll? Well, the poll, can we bring up the poll, please? Um, if you were the Director of Hygiene in the Ministry of Health of a low to middle income country, what would you be your priority in this pandemic? Would it be A, rolling out hand pumps with soap at health facilities and schools? Or would it be B, expanding availability of low-tech alternatives such as ASH? Or C, high-tech solutions such as hand sanitizer, or perhaps D, behavior change promotion for better hand washing practices to boys and men in particular. So we're gonna go into a break. You're gonna have a couple of minutes just to make your an answer. And if you stay with us, we're gonna be able to reveal what our audience thought would be the most important one just after the break. Thanks very much. But of course the panelists won't be able to answer. Fortunately, right? the panelists won't be able to answer. It's just, just for the audience. audience. <laughs> All right. Thank you very see you much. In a, see you in a minute or two while the poll goes on. Welcome back. Um, in the break, you actually made a good uh, effort to um, complete the poll and we have some interesting results back now. For a question, which was, if you were the Director of Hygiene in the Ministry of Health in a low to middle income country, and you had to prioritize one of four things, what would you prioritize? Well, our audience felt that the most important thing was to prioritize behavior change promotion, especially to boys and men. And 60% of the audience believe that. The next thing that came up was rolling out hand pumps which so at health facilities and schools. And that was prioritized by around 28% of the audience. Uh, expanding the availability of low-tech alternatives such as ASH had the support of around 12%. And actually nobody thought that we should promote high-tech solutions such as hand sanitizer. Hmm. Um, okay, now we're into solutions. And what I'm gonna do is to start where I left off with Robert. And to talk about one thing I think that has come up out of this conversation. There's been a lot of talk about the whole of society approach. There's been a lot of talk about we need to keep everything going afterwards. 
and there's been a lot of talk about the multiple dimensions. We get this a lot on this Leading Minds about how everyone has a role. But what is missing to us to get that whole of society approach in your esteemed opinion? I'm going to ask the same question to each one of you. What is currently missing? Starting with you, Robert. Um, well, I, I think kind of one part of, of really understanding kind of a whole society approach, particularly around kind of hand hygiene, is, is really thinking through kind of what, what we mean by what, how all of these pieces really do fit together. So even with this kind of the poll and, and focusing on things like access to infrastructure versus hygiene promotion, I think we need to think of these as all interrelated components that are driving towards the same goal and they're not inseparable from one another. We can promote, we need to think of this as kind of, you know, a more comprehensive and, and interlinked set of solutions and really making sure that we're addressing all of those. I think the other thing is we've been really slow in the sector, which I find very strange uh, to, to realize that people aren't just spending time at home. Granted, lockdown, we really are um, for a vast majority of the world, but really also kind of one thing that's been largely absent from a lot of the dialogue here is public spaces, is markets, is places of businesses, and how we can increase hand hygiene infrastructure, soap availability, and just kind of behavior change strategies that are really targeted at things outside the home, this kind of beyond the household, is really kind of one area that we've largely ignored um, in terms of all of our efforts. We've been slow to realize how things are in clinics and schools, but there's more places beyond the household that, that, that we need to be kind of really paying attention to. Thanks very much, Robert. I'm going to go to Param. Param, what do you think is missing to get a whole society approach to hand hygiene? I, you know, I think there are a couple of things uh, which we need to talk about. The first, as Rob just said, I think there uh, so far uh, there's been somewhat of a gap in terms of hygiene in public places. And we're just starting to address that in India through a massive drive uh, to promote community sanitary complexes which will have hand washing facilities, obviously running water with soap, because we have a lot of bazaars, a lot of marketplaces in both urban, rural and peri-urban areas, which have traditionally been neglected. So we focus a lot on individual households, which work well in Swaj Bharat, and now we are starting to talk about public places. And I think the second thing which is really important is the focus on sustainability. You know, we are very conscious of the fact that behavior change, as I learned from my you know, Guru, Val Curtis, and others, is that you need to keep working at it. You know, that you need, how do you make that behavior change stick? The capacity building, the communication at the local level needs to continue. And I think we're going to need this for hand washing as well. I think Rob hinted at it when he said that the fear factor may not last for very long. You know, I've, I've started traveling in the interior of, of rural India in the last couple of weeks, and I'm starting to see signs of people sort of, you know, thinking this is, Getting back to normal, the fear factor is receding a bit. So I think how do we sustain this behavior? We're trying to do it in sanitation. I think we need to do it for hand washing as well. Thanks very much, Pram. Thanks very much. Erin, what do you think is the missing link here? Now, I really want to echo what um, Secretary was saying and Robert as well. Just how do we make this stick, right? The, the, what's going to replace the fear factor? But also, what are the tools? What do people need to do that? What, you know, how do we make that easy 
for people to do? What triggers can we put in place in the household? So I think that will be really required. I think also, you know, the, the how do we make people realize what is the societal benefit? How do we start to show some of the impact at a, at a local level and tell the local story of the impact of good hygiene, of thinking about sanitation and hygiene and, and mention many of the ways that, you know, Swash Bharat tried to describe that impact and drive change at the community level. But I think the third thing is really innovation. How, how do we think differently about the way we do business? How do we think differently about the products and the services and the tools that we can bring to these communities? And how do we start to drive innovation for, you know, entrepreneurs to take a new way to approach things, to partner better with utilities or with governments and public-private partnerships? Um, you know, how do we develop new Sato taps or, you know, or new other solutions that are readily adaptable to slums versus the rural communities? So I think innovation, continued innovation, really inspiring people to come up with new ideas and to test and to fail and to experiment and learn about what works and what doesn't. And I think that will get us closer and really accelerate our progress. Thanks very much. I'm turning now to WHO and UNICEF. From your point of view, what is missing in the international community that we need to keep this momentum going? I'm going to start with you, Nayako. Thank you very much. So let me focus on the how we can create the universal uh, environment of universal access to wash and hygiene in, uh, rather than behavior change. And uh, for me, is uh, this at a local or community level? how we can create uh, the important issues how we can create a sustainable continuous supporting system or mechanism for the people in the ground to to create a uh, uh, universal access uh, ocean hygiene facilities how you you in agencies or bilateral agency developing donors or including together with the member uh, countries or government public sector and together with the civil society private sector uh, how we can create a clear social mechanism to sustain our support and partnership that's a missing point thanks very much Nyako. Kellyanne um, what do we do from our side to make sure this sticks I think the, the thing I've been thinking a lot recently, so kind of shifting from the what of the of the whole of society is really the how. Um, and I think, you know, one of the dangers that we really have um, is talking to people we already know. I think, you know, we very much can be in our comfort zone. Um, you know, there's the WASH community. We tend to work, work together very, very well and very collaboratively, but we really need to be talking to the unconverted. And I just, you know, wanted to share kind of on the journey that we're on um, together with WHO and this hand hygiene initiative um, has been a lot of the new partnerships that we've had to form. Um, and, you know, I found myself, you know, whether it's talking to a labor union, um, talking to um, you know ILO around uh, workplace standards, um, talking to uh, the World Cocoa Foundation about how to mainstream hand hygiene across their supply chains and, and their uh, communities where they work, um, talking to, to CEO Mendic. I think what I've seen that's been very transformative is this going from kind of other people's business to something that is really related to our core business. And I think anytime, and, and I've seen it, you know, it's 
through these engagements. Um, we've had, I, I think, with the private sector, also really point out local governments. Um, and you know, we've been in exchanging with um, the Union of Cities and Local Governments, the Association of Francophone Mayors. I mean, WASH people don't usually talk to them. Um, and I think that this has given us really an opportunity to break down these, these barriers. Um, and as an international community, break down some of the silos that we have um, and to be working together through these networks and partnerships um, that can really localize this um, in countries, in communities, in um, informal settlements, in urban areas um, to really make it their, their business um, and see it as part of not an extra, but really part of the economic imperative of getting back to work, getting back to school, um, getting back to um, you know our, our, our life uh, habits and patterns. Um, so I really think that that's been a great opportunity to keep it front and center as part of the whole, um, you know, response and and to and, and the reopening approach. Thanks very much, Kellyanne. Thanks to all our panelists. I'm going to give uh, ask one more question to Param because uh, of the work that you led, Pram, uh, so powerfully in India. This is another challenge for you and for all of our panelists and for the world. Uh, what do we say to families? The families on, in some ways, the front line with the children of setting behavior change, of allowing them to begin to form at a young age. What is your message to families and across the world of how they promote hand hygiene? Because, you know, that's uh, something which we have been associated with from the beginning. And I think UNICEF played a very uh, major role in supporting us on this. How do you involve in particular school children, school girls in particular? This was for sanitation. When, you know, we saw them getting out and demanding toilets from their parents from, and from the village elders. So I think children and families uh, in particular have a major role in sustaining this whole push for behavior change, in particular for hygiene. Kids pick up, pick it up very fast. They're great ambassadors. And we use the, our school children in India to great effect on promoting sanitation. And I think that the kids get excited. Uh, you know, they can teach their elders. So I see a huge role for children and, uh, you know, in promoting hygiene, in promoting hand washing, in promoting this campaign and making it stick. So that's, I think we need to leverage that and we need to do much more of it. Thank you very much, Pram. Thanks to all of our panelists, Pram, Nayako, Erin, Robert, Kellyanne. Thanks so much. I'm going to send it back to you, Sarah, uh, to, to sign us off. Thanks, David. I, I think Param's last message about children, a fascinating one. Uh, and also Kelly mentioned workplace. Uh, and of course, we've seen a lot of outbreaks in workplaces, in meatpacking industries, food industry. So clearly that's key. And I want to end on an advert, if I may. So it seems that the poll was saying not so much this hand sanitizer, but more soap. Uh, and that really cuts down the disease, as we know, uh, dramatically. So that's it from me. Join us again in two weeks' time. That's the 16th of July, where we continue this series of what the experts say on coronavirus and children. And we'll be looking at child well-being child health and child well-being, a really critical issue at this time. Um, so that's it. Same place, same time, in two weeks' time. Bye now. <laughs>